How can you make your presentation deck a useful accessory that helps you effectively tell your story rather than part of the world's largest recycling program? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement designed specifically for educational institutions. If you have clients in that vertical, you know the healthcare deck has been stacked against them. Today, Captivated Health offers the stability, control, and savings they've been waiting for. For more information, go to www.captivatedhealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. How can you be the first to know about each week's podcast and get on the list for special listener-only content? It's simple. Go to shiftshapersonline.com and click the subscribe button. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're pleased to welcome back Megan Dodder. It's always fun to visit with Megan. For those of you who maybe missed her first interview, it's in the archives, and we encourage you to, to go and listen. We love talking to Megan because she's a presentation, communication, and PR expert. She's principal at her firm, which is called Portico PR. Megan, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know, you and I were talking off air. I've been out chatting about printed communications and some of the common mistakes that folks make when they're doing printed communications or websites or whatever. From your practice, what are some of the common mistakes that you see and and how can they be overcome? Uh, With presentations, the the biggest mistake is probably trying to convey more information than our colleagues or general audience can conceivably take in in one setting. And there are a couple of motivations that cause that type of problem. One of them is when you talk about those issues that you see in other printed collateral or email or whatever communication tactic we have, we often default to presentations if we feel as if we're not getting our our point across in, in emails or newsletters. And so what we've talked about in a lot in our workshops is being aware of that we're not holding meetings and asking people to present to solve for the failure of other communication tactics. That's interesting. Can you give me an example of how that might manifest itself? Absolutely. A great example might be if you have information that you need to share with your colleagues and you might not need an action from them or, or a decision or a response, but they need to know this change in procedure or policy or whatever it is to do their job. And so you might put it in an email you might put in a newsletter or on your internet site. And yet in the course of doing your work, you're realizing that people actually haven't taken this information to heart or they don't know about it. And so in the next staff meeting, it might be your first agenda item, or you might call a meeting to say, this is information and it's important to your work and this is why. And often the result can be that People feel as if if they have been reading the communication, they're being penalized because now you've used their valuable time and you're telling them information that doesn't really require debate. It's already been decided on. And for the others, you're rewarding their behavior because you're telling them in another way that my emails and newsletters aren't that important because I'll figure out a way to get it in front of you. So 
in a lot of cases where we go in to help fix presentations and meetings, we like to look at all of the communication pieces that they're working with first and kind of see that that whole system, that whole environment of communication and really figure out, are there things we can do with subject lines? Can we give templates and guidelines to make emails more actionable, more compelling, more newsletters? Because the onus really is on you as the person who's trying to communicate the information to make it relevant Uh, to make it interesting, to let them know whether it's for informational or situational awareness or if there's an action item. So a lot of the same criteria that we put into thinking about how to make a great presentation, we want to think about when we think of our other emails, newsletters, or website content. Something else that I see often is in printed stuff, we call it forgetting the hook. In a presentation, in a, in a PowerPoint presentation or a presentation in a meeting, you might call it missing the emotion. How important is it to connect emotionally your idea to an audience? And what are some of the ways that, that work best to do that? It is. Emotion is so important. And I think it's, it's one of those concepts that, especially for uh, those of us in corporate America who work in what might seem as somewhat straightforward, technical, highly complex professions and industries, there's this idea that it should be somewhat cut and dried and and you leave emotion out of it because that's not professional. And yet, if we really study the research and understand how people make decisions and how they even process information, you can't do that outside of emotion. And so for a lot of uh, people that we work with, it's figuring out what is that right balance of, of emotion that you want to get through. And, and maybe a better word for that is really thinking about energy. And so if I'm about to share some information that might be pretty disappointing, I'm going to announce layoffs or there are cutbacks, or we're not going to be able to invest in research and development the way we thought we were going to. What we might do in that situation is think about that energy and think, okay, if I'm in that in the audience, sitting as an audience member, what are the things that are going to concern to me? Because if we think about it from our audience's perspective and, and do that Venn diagram, which I like to do for every communication piece, what is it that I want to get across and what is it that they need from me? It's almost impossible to do that exercise without getting into how does that person, how is this news going to make that person feel? And the more you think about what you need to get from them how and what they need to get from you, that's how you can find that middle ground of what's the right level of emotion and energy. That's a key point. And I think we, we miss that sometimes. And I, I like what you said. I think a lot of us kind of get to the point where we believe that injecting emotion, no matter how subtly we do it into a presentation or anything we do in business, is somehow unprofessional. And what you realize is that you can't ever make any kind of a sale. You can't ever connect a point to another individual without some emotional connection. There's a a great book, and I know you're familiar with it, written by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. We'll link to that, and we'll also put a link to his TED Talk. But his whole thesis is that while we think we make decisions with a prefrontal cortex, we actually make decisions with the limbic system, the old kind of lizard dinosaur brain. And we've just gotten really good at using our prefrontal cortex to justify those decisions and to figure out how to rationalize them over over time. So I'm glad that you made that point. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of an interview that I did a few weeks ago with uh, Professor Michael Usim at uh, Wharton at University of Pennsylvania. He's one of the foremost experts in board governance and leadership. He's written some great books on the 
15 traits of leadership. And when he talks about communication in our discussion, he said the ability to find that right level of emotion and really connect to your audience is one of the most important leadership skills to think about. And so to me, that was a a great uh, confirmation of, of what we see you know, in our own presentations and interactions that if if Wharton is saying, if Professor Usim is saying is saying that this is important, um, then it, it's time to reconsider what's that level of emotion that, that makes us feel comfortable. Especially when, when you think about actually giving the presentation and the delivery, I like to compare it to providing punctuation for your audience. And so you wouldn't write without commas or periods or setting paragraphs. And so that might be the easiest, most kind of conservative way to think about emotion is when I'm thinking about the material and how, do, how I deliver it, how would I punctuate this and bring this to life? And that's a very safe way to start thinking about incorporating emotion and energy into your presentations. Yeah, it, it is a key leadership skill. I mean, if you think about all of the leaders that we admire, that we know, I mean, the example I like to use is Martin Luther King did not say, I have a plan. He said, I have a dream. (laughs) And the difference between those two words is very subtle, but it makes a huge difference in how your audience reacts to it. And I'm glad that we're we're bringing this back into the business conversation. What are some of the other kind of mistakes or stumbles that you, you typically see that are key and easily correctable? I would say that the biggest mistake is that when I talk to people about their reaction when they give a presentation, which it turns out I get an emotional response before I get the, these are the steps I take. So that tells us we can't avoid emotion in corporate America, unless they absolutely love them, which is a rare bird. They either panic or stress, or then they talk about going back into a presentation deck, the actual PowerPoint or keynote that they might've created a couple of days or weeks or months ago. And they begin what I like to call the world's biggest recycling program. They go through and they see which slides can we repurpose because in their mind, they're thinking this is the most efficient way to get from point A to point B. And the problem with this process is that it is so focused on that presentation deck. And if we can step outside of that and think of how can I think about that presentation deck as an accessory, as, as a visual that can reinforce what I'm going to say through spoken word, then it helps us prioritize where we place our resources. When we take a deck and we email it back and forth to our colleagues and we tweak things like the headline or the font or which chart or graph to use, it's just such a loss of opportunity because that's not how teams really collaborate. I've talked to many IT professionals and they tell me that the our servers in the cloud is not adding any value in terms of collaboration. So if we can fix the process and set up a conversation, if it's you alone and you're speaking at a keynote, uh, talk to the event organizer, or if you're presenting to a potential client, talk to your colleagues, talk to the client, do the research and figure out how do I match what we need with what they need. That's the easiest way to filter out what is most important for this audience at that time. And then think through, if that's our end goal, how can we build messages around that? And getting to we talked about earlier, there's far more information. I mean, we work with professionals who've who've been, you know, have multiple graduate degrees or they've been in the workforce, started companies two or three times. 
there's far more information that they can share on a topic than our audience can conceivably take in. So let's figure out what's most important for that audience at that time and then figure out what are the, say, top five to seven messages that we think they should, would support that goal. And then window it down to three, frame it in terms of problems and solutions to keep their attention and interest and get them involved. Once you've gone through all those discussions with your colleagues, then think about what are the visuals that we need to support us. So you've really got your presentation 80% complete before you even open up a PowerPoint file or Keynote. And and a lot of times you might not even need a deck. It might be, you know, one or two visuals or in, in many cases, we have clients that have switched to writing a summary memo and they provide that afterwards. So it's a well-written document that might have a chart or a graph or a diagram But that frees up teams to really focus on what's the discussion conversation we want to have with one another or with our clients. And it it puts the design of the presentation in its rightful point in the process. And now a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single source solution for your clients and prospects who are in the education vertical. The founders of Captivated Health have nearly 20 years' experience working with educational institutions, and over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems these clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing health care costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems, and it does so with virtually no disruption to faculty and staff while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to the educational clients you advise. To learn more about the Captivated Health solution, Go to their website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on their logo on the Shift Shapers website. And now, back to our interview. One of the questions that I get all the time, and I'll bet you get it as well, and maybe you can shed some light on this for our audience, is what's the longest a presentation should be? How long can even a great presenter hold an audience's attention until they start? the audience starts feeling overloaded and they're not? really taking the information in and and understanding it. And this is the depressing part. In terms of attention spans, there's research that says it's anywhere from seconds. It's been alleged that humans have shorter attention spans than goldfish. I I don't believe that. So I'm just going to spell that research. There have been other sources such as John Medina. He's a neuroscientist who wrote Brain Rolls. He's done some pretty exhaustive research on this, including with his own classes And he finds that our attention spans are about 10 minutes. Now, you can have a speaker talk 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour is probably stretching it. But there are certain tools and techniques or hacks, uh, another way to say it, to get around that attention span. And so if you're constantly bringing your audience in and inviting them in, and it might be to ask questions, it might be to or if the room is too big, you might be asking questions that you then answer. But if you can set things up as problems and solutions and problems and solutions, and so people might not pay attention to all three of your problem solution sets, but they're going to be more likely to at least remember one. And if you use storytelling techniques, 
it is much easier to get lost in a story and it, you pique your audience's curiosity to wonder, well, what happened? There was this problem. There was drama. We're just inherently interested in finding out how to resolve a problem. That's a great way to, if you have to speak for an hour, speak for an hour. But I've, I've always said, and I've yet to be find a, something that just proves this, if you can speak for less time, it, it forces more clarity and precision. So if you give people 15 minutes back in their day or to open discussion or to network if it's an event, that's just another way to, to make your audience happy. And that's something that we, again, lose a, an awful lot of the time is that somebody told me once, one of my mentors told me that a presentation does not have to be everlasting to be immortal. <laughs> and I think sometimes folks just overload a presentation. And I like that idea of when you do something that's shorter, you bring more focus and more clarity. The other point that I think we, we've lost along with the emotion is the fact that we need to start from a basis of the word you used is exactly the right word, storytelling. How important is it for presenters who are trying to get across a concept to think about it in terms of a story, even if they don't end up presenting in that mode? It's helpful because it forces a discipline of thinking, what was the problem? What were the options that I thought of in terms of solving that problem? What worked? What didn't? And sharing what didn't work and where you failed is just as important in terms of giving a full texture to a story and then what the resolution is. If you set up a problem solution and give people insight on on what you were thinking, why you took a certain approach, why it worked or why it didn't, you can't help but be curious and wonder what happened. I, I like to compare it to thinking of if you have a bunch of facts and figures and data and insight that you want to share with your audience and think about these as in terms of if you were packing for a trip. So you have clothes, you have shoes, you have your toiletries. If you were to hand each of those items to someone else, it would get cumbersome. Think of your story as a backpack or suitcase in which it makes it easier to carry and understand how these things all relate to. It's much easier to carry a backpack than it is to carry 17 different items. So storytelling is a way to weave together any insight facts give context to data that you're showing. We work with a lot of data analytics firms. And one of the things we talk about is don't tell us what the data is or data are. Tell us what it means and what the headline is. And so it's just kind of encouraging people who are, are so close into the weeds and the data and the, the, the details to step back and tell us, as a human, what was the emotion you had to this? What what surprised you? What went as planned? And, and what were the results? And what would you tell someone in, in the next situation? It's that type of use of storytelling that really gets people to share their experience and insight. And that's how we learn and collaborate. It enables us to be much more effective at our jobs. Megan, we've got just a few minutes left. And, and I think the last thing that I want to touch on is authenticity, because I think that's something else that gets lost. I recently saw someone who was very knowledgeable in their subject do a presentation. Clearly, they were uncomfortable presenting, and they almost came off as a caricature of a presenter. How mm -hmm. important is authenticity, and, and how does that manifest? It's important for two things. One is, back to our theme of emotion, whatever emotion you carry in the room as a presenter is exactly what your audience is going to feel. And so if you're anxious, if you're nervous, 
your audience picks up on that. We have mirror neurons. And there's a researcher out at Stanford, Kelly McGonigal, who's done some fascinating work on this. Um, Also, Richard Neustack. Authenticity is important because if there's a disconnect between what you're saying and how you actually feel, your emotion and your energy level at that moment, your audience absolutely picks up on that. And so instead of paying attention to what you're saying, they're wondering why you're nervous or why you're anxious or why you're smiling when you're giving me really bad news or it, it, it's clear that you're not feeling good about this. And so there are a couple of things that you can do to help yourself in these which are often stressful, high pressure situations. There's nothing normal about getting in front of a, a room of 5,000 people or in front of a board of directors. I, I'm not going to say that the, there, are, there isn't a reason to be nervous or anxious, but what you want to do is think about cultivating your own presentation persona. And so when I speak or when my clients speak, they will do a little, a few things differently. They will figure out which tools and techniques can help them be more relaxed and more confident. And even now, as I'm talking about it, I'm, I'm speaking more slowly. That's one of the first things people can do. They might use hand gestures more than they would if they were talking to someone one-on-one. And there's a whole list of, of tools and techniques and options. The idea is that you pick which three or four work for you and you rely on those in these high pressure situations. And it makes focusing on your content and engaging the audience so much easier. And so it's authenticity with a twist. It's your you're a different person in the same way that if you're an Olympic athlete, you're different when you step up in front of the uneven bars or you're about to, you know, wrestle or swim or whatever or, or race that mile. You're a different person in that moment of competition than you are 10 minutes later or two hours before or the week before. And so it's acknowledging that you're different, but you're finding tools that feel natural and relaxed and genuine to you. Great advice. We always like visiting with you, Megan. Thanks again for sharing your expertise with the Shift Shapers audience. You're welcome. It was great talking to you, David. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved. 